turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to reread verses 25 through 34. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. read together. When you pray, I'm sorry, that's not even the right word. I mean, if you want to start there, we can just read the whole thing. No, it's fine. fine. Just Chapter tw- uh, 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay. Now, we spent our time last week in this passage, and we drew the conclusion that uh, you shouldn't worry if you're a Christian. You should not worry about your food or your clothing or generally about what happens tomorrow. Um, Why should we not worry? Well... Because the King of Kings is our Father. Because He loves us. And He knows what I, what I need. He has kept us and He's keeping us and He will keep us. There's this picture you get from this passage that, that God, if He's sustained you to this point, will sustain you today and will sustain you through tomorrow. There should be confidence in the King if He has done the work to keep you despite yourself for this long, right? And we set this passage in its biblical context, which is anchored in the wilderness generation, the generation that wandered from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years and uh, came to the Jordan River uh, and their children passed over into the Promised Land. That's the framework often that the biblical authors in the New Testament will use to explain our redemption. We were slaved. We were, we were enslaved. Uh, we were bought by the blood of the Lamb. We were washed in the waters of baptism. We have been guided by the Spirit miraculously through the wilderness. And we will cross over into the promised land by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So, we shouldn't 
worry about things, material things, and money and food and clothing. Our confidence is anchored in the God whose pillar of fire comforted a nation of slaves as they crossed from slavery to freedom. That is our God. He is still like that. He doesn't change. He's a miraculous Redeemer. And He is able to see what we need. And even on the days where we hunger, He's doing that on purpose. Right? That's the framework for understanding this passage. Now we reached that conclusion. Don't worry. But we didn't go one step further, as Jesus does, because there's a lot to unpack in this next series of statements. But, so, instead of worrying, instead of being anxious over these trivial matters like the pagans, like the Gentiles who don't know God and have no confidence in His love, instead of worrying, seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there, even if it weren't a major pillar in heresies that haunt the church, right? Even if we were only dealing with what this means, and we weren't dealing with a whole cultural history of abuse of this passage, we'd have a lot to deal with. We have to deal with both, though. The words as they mean, and the words as they've been poorly taught. Now, luckily doing the work of understanding the meaning of this passage is going to resolve many of those teachings about this passage. Because you can't simultaneously hold those teachings and also understand this passage as it clearly means in its context. That's the job for this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to seek the kingdom and His righteousness? What does it mean that He will add these things to us? And what doesn't it mean? So, let me pull back for a moment and reference something I I talked about last week. Context. Context is the single most important principle, I think, in the work of interpretation. You can't understand almost anything that's written if you don't understand the context of those words. Um, There's a lot of bad teaching in the last several decades on what books mean, and that bad teaching is primarily anchored in it doesn't matter what it was originally intended to mean It matters what you hear and how it makes you feel and how you respond to it. It's it's an interpretive school called Reader Response Theory, and it is garbage. Garbage, guys. There is a thing that is your emotional response to a text or a book or a poem or whatever, and that's a thing, and you can be really grateful for that thing, but you don't 
force that thing into the conversation about what does it mean? It means something that is static, and that static meaning is understood within context. So we talked about context being multidimensional last week. What do we mean specifically in in, in the Scriptures? What do we mean when we say you've got to read it in context? Well, usually we mean a couple different things. One, you've got to read that passage within its near context, within its verbal, grammatical context. The, the, the sentence that puzzles you is housed within probably a paragraph, and that paragraph is housed within probably a passage or a chapter or a pericope, whatever you want to use to talk about the chunk that it is within, right? That's context. Most of the time when we're dealing very near to some passages like this, when we mean context, we mean like the near context. What was said before and after. What words were used within that reference what was said before and after. See what I mean? That's context. But we also, when we dive into context, we mean context in a broader sense, which is the book context. Book context means this sentence, which, yeah, sure, plays a part in this passage, is only one part, that passage is only one part of a book, and that book has a purpose, right? So uh, we can get into a lot of trouble, especially in the Gospels, because there are four of them, right? And those four books are written to four different cultures for four distinct purposes, Now, when you take a passage and you try and understand that passage by looking at the other three Gospels without really thinking about the broad book context, you can actually make that passage mean what probably John meant for that passage to mean uh, when he referenced it, or or Luke, or or Mark. And, And you might miss the meaning of that passage within this book, how that passage plays into the purpose of this book, uh, if you don't think broadly about what is this author doing right now. So that's sometimes what we mean by context. But broadly, the biggest context we're referencing is the biblical context. Most major heresies, most of the time when people don't just get it wrong, but get it wrong, way wrong, such that they're undermining the faith, it's because they're reading a passage or a book outside of the biblical context. The Bible is a book. It's actually a really remarkable and unique book because the Bible as a book is composed of 66 unique books, each contributing to an overall purpose. You can't really understand any one of them unless you're reading them as a part of a whole. Right? So, we understand passages by looking at context, and context, and context. So, I think we should use that matrix to understand this passage. Seek the kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does that mean? Okay, well first we're going to dive into the passage context. Passage context. Ironically, last week when I was explaining the context thing, I said, if there's a therefore, right? If there's a therefore, that means that that passage is related to the passage before. And if 
somebody who's trying to interpret the passage doesn't deal with that dynamic, then they're not really rightly reading. And then later, I just didn't even deal with that dynamic. So apparently, I'm just, you know, uh, undermining my own uh, purposes. But what we're going to do first is we're going to deal with that therefore, to use the ridiculous and awesome phrase which should occur to you, I hope, every time you read the Bible. you got to know what the therefore is there for. My favorite version of this is from a, a preacher who's in like central Oklahoma, and he's just got the nasaliest, southernest, you know, and he's just, when he says you've got to figure out what the therefore is there for, it's just brilliant. Anyways, um, you've got to understand why this passage starts with therefore. Now, therefore is a signal that this is fundamentally related to that, okay? It's a signal that this is fundamentally related to that. Now, it is not telling you what that relationship is. So don't get into trouble. That's your job. Your job is to figure out what's the relationship between those things. And you've got to actually look into the, the, the passage itself and its context to try and decipher what that relationship is. Some people read therefore, and they read always causal, or because this, then that, and that's problematic, because there's a lot of situations where that'll get you into dangerous waters. But it's a signal that these two things are fundamentally related, and this passage that we've been reading starts with therefore. So I want to read the passage prior and figure out what the therefore is there for. So let's get started there. Jump back to verse 19. 6, verse 19, and let's read together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Did you see it? So Jesus is drawing our attention to our behavior as an investment. Right? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures on heaven. Your actions, your Words, your purpose is an investment in one kingdom or the other. And then he shifts and he says, your attention is going to inform everything you do. Where your eyes are is where your heart will go. Does that make sense? So if your eyes are perpetually on this kingdom, and all this kingdom has to offer, that Attention, that vision is going to corrupt your heart, right? And then finally he says, choose a master. 
choose a Lord. You will either serve mammon or God. You will either serve the success, the promises of success in this world, or you will serve our King who has promised you an inheritance in the next. Right? Take care of your investment and your attention and your submission. Therefore, don't be anxious about this life. So, as our first attempt to answer the question, what does seeking the kingdom mean? What does it mean to seek the kingdom? We've got a really simple answer in the passage's nearest context. At least, on some level, seeking the kingdom means stop investing your treasure on earth Instead, invest your treasure in heaven. And it means turn your attention from that which corrupts to that which gives life. And it means stop laboring as a servant of earthly success. Instead, labor as a servant of God. So instead of being anxious, seek the kingdom. What does seeking the kingdom mean? It means turning away from and running toward. Right? turning away from and running toward. That's what the passage's nearest context seems to indicate. Now that's our theory, right? And if you're reading the Bible by yourself and you're laboring to find the context of the passage, you read that context and you start jotting down hypotheses. I think this is what this might mean, right? That's our first hypothesis. Seeking the kingdom seems to mean turning away from the promises of this world, turning our attention away from the offerings of this world, and turning our attention to and running toward and investing in the kingdom to come. All right, that's the nearest passage. All right, we need to test that against the book context. What does the book seem to be doing with this notion of kingdom? and seeking the kingdom. I want to look at three different passages in Matthew to try and answer that question. First, we're going to look at Matthew 3. Uh, It's on page 808 if you're in the Pew Bible. Uh, It's just a few pages prior if you're in any other Bible, probably. Um, Matthew chapter 3. I want to start in verse 2. I'm going to read all the way down Verse 10. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of a sudden, you see the signal, right? I'm looking for kingdom. What what does Matthew say about the kingdom and how we should relate to the kingdom? Well, it comes up pretty clearly in the story of John the Baptist. And the first thing we know about adult John the Baptist is that he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths 
straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In other words, he was a prophet. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And listen, listen to his call. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, in our first major introduction to this theme of kingdom, we have John saying, repent. And then we have him saying, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay? That's good. Let's stick it in our pocket and keep going. It's not a full enough understanding that it maybe will get us there. All right, let's skip ahead to chapter 13. I'm being quite selective, by the way. There's a lot of mentions of kingdom, but these, I think, are some of the more explicit ones. We're going to start in verse 44. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Next verse. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value went and sold everything that he had and bought it. Okay. Okay. So we have, in the words of John, this call to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we have this, these word pictures, these, these, these analogies of the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's like a treasure that you find in a field. And you will do everything. You will sell everything that you have to buy that field. That's how valuable the treasure is. It's like a merchant who sells pearls, finding a pearl of inestimable, inestimable, a really valuable pearl. He finds a really valuable pearl, and he sells everything he has. All those other little pearls, plus his stuff, plus his home, everything he has to buy that pearl. That's what the kingdom's like. Selling everything. Selling everything to buy the treasure. Alright? Let's look one more place. We already read this. Not coordinated, by the way. We're always talking about how the Spirit is just like doing stuff. It's especially evident because I never answer my phone or my text messages. And sometimes Gary's trying to... Amen. Sometimes Gary's trying to uh, to talk to me about this, the, the, the message and we miss each other. And... It's beautiful to watch how consistently what we proclaim is what is being proclaimed to us in the Scriptures. Amen? Okay. 
So um, we read this together. Let me read it again. This is chapter 16, verse 24. Chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. What shall a man man give in return for his soul? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross was an instrument of execution. That is why they existed in Roman culture. If you didn't survive the cross, you were nailed to it until you died. And if they got tired of waiting, they'd stab you while you were still on the cross. That's the cross that you're called to pick up. You shouldn't read that lightly. To quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's tough to read alone, but against the promises of the kingdom. It is just a light and momentary suffering. Okay. So at least in these passages, it seems that seeking the kingdom looks like repenting and bearing fruit and selling everything you've got to buy the treasure and denying yourself and picking up your cross. Three different ways to say the same thing. Three different ways to say the same thing. Lose your life for Christ and you will gain the kingdom. That is not to say that you're losing your life is earning you the kingdom. And it's not to say that you're losing your life is the sacrifice necessary for you to merit the kingdom. That's a different gospel. What it is saying is that Christ has done the work for His people and He has changed who they are in their heart, and because He has changed who they are in their heart, they will follow Him even to the grave. Make sense? Lose your life and you'll gain the kingdom. If you find yourself rarely losing, rarely hurting, rarely suffering, you should ask tough questions about whether or not you're faithfully following Jesus. That doesn't also mean that you're going to be like getting a call to go on the mission field in East Asia, be persecuted and killed. That's not always what it looks like. In fact, I'm tempted to say that sometimes the secret suffering of mothers who have no sleep and no rest and no faith and lay themselves down for their children and preach the gospel to them every single day over and over again and then, God forbid, watch them walk away and encounter sin and be tempted by it and still praise the King who is good. That's dying. 
That is dying. It's a dying that happens every day. You, if you are in Christ, will be called to lose your life, but you will gain the kingdom in exchange. All right, I think that's what the book has to say about seeking the kingdom. Let's look at the biblical context now. This is nifty, guys, because we're going to look at three different passages, but we don't actually have to turn to but just one. Okay, I want you to look at Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We set this passage, I think rightfully in its context, that is the wilderness generation. And the book of Hebrews is explicitly calling out that context to give you a warning about what seeking the kingdom does not look like. What does is, what is seeking the kingdom not look like? Or, or in other words, what does it look like to waver from, to turn away from the kingdom? And he points back to the very context that we've been referencing for the last two weeks. And he points back to a song of Israel in the Psalms. And he applies it to us. So we get in one passage the writing, I'm sorry, the, 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 the law and the writings and the New Testament all in one go. So let's read as he begins to quote God leading the people of Israel in praise, starting in verse 7. Therefore, Hang on, let me read one verse prior. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house if we hold fast. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original, hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. So, book ending this passage is a brilliant promise for those who endure. And a terrible warning for those who wave. Right in between, he's quoting the psalmist who's quoting Exodus 17. He's pointing back to Exodus 17 and saying, remember? Do you remember that when you got thirsty and hungry in the wilderness, instead of leaning into the promises that God made to lead you to the promised land and pleading with Him for help, you said, oh, remember in Egypt, when we had pots full of meat, and you wavered in your faith, and you turned away from the kingdom. 
Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't harden your hearts. Don't foster unbelief in your hearts. Instead, fight unbelief by encouraging one another to repent that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So Exodus 16 and 17 and Matthew 95 and Hebrews... uh, Matthew 95. If you bought the expensive Bible, it's going to be in there. But um, I'm just kidding. There's no Matthew 95. Um, Psalm 95, Hebrews 3, Exodus 16 and 17. Drawing the same conclusions... Namely, seeking the kingdom does not look like clinging to your life, clinging to your sin, clinging to slavery where there were pots of meat so that you lose the kingdom. That, I think, is a mirror inverse, right? It's an inverse of what we've been reading. And so it tests true to our Suspicion that seeking the kingdom looks like losing your life to gain the kingdom. It looks like losing your life to gain the kingdom. So you lose your life to gain the kingdom, and you cling to your life to lose the kingdom. Those are the choices before you this morning and tomorrow and the next day, and the next day. So what does it mean in this passage, in this book, in the Bible, what does it mean to seek the kingdom and God's righteousness? I think it means consciously turning away from the promises of the world. Consciously turning away from the promises of the world. Stifling sin and unbelief in your heart and investing your life in bearing fruit for the kingdom. It is an all-or-nothing gamble. Lose all hope in this kingdom. Invest all your energies in that one. If there is no resurrection, we ought to be the men and women who are most pitied. I'm afraid we're not. Right? Losing your life means surrendering any hope in this earth, this kingdom. And it means devoting your energies, your time, your heart, your prayers to bearing fruit in preparation for that kingdom. Okay. All right. I think that's clear enough. Now, if you find yourself saying, well, that's abstract too, Ben. What does it mean to bear fruit? What does it mean to to lay down your life? What does it mean to surrender your hope? Great, great questions. That's why the New Testament was written. That's why the letters to the churches were written. The letters to the churches are teaching us how to set aside our right, how to set aside our hope, in this kingdom, our, our investment in this kingdom, and how to bear fruit to prepare for the next. So, 
Go read it. It's a good book. Good book. Um, all right, so that much is clear. Well, let's deal with this second section of the verse. If you seek God's kingdom and righteousness, all these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. What, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that all these things will be added to you? And what doesn't it mean? I'll tell you, the reason I'm dealing so closely with this is because this statement is one of several pillars that prop up the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which is an enemy to our faith. Christ says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel says, follow Jesus and you can have this kingdom. You live long. You won't get sick. You'll have lots of money in your bank account. Everybody will love you. That is not the gospel. And when I was in that world of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, this passage was pointed to. Look, it says, if you seek the kingdom, namely if you have faith, if you have faith in Jesus, He'll give it all to you. And then they'll look at things like Paul said, if he didn't not if he didn't restrain his son, if he if he gave his son, how much more will he give you all things? So just believe in Jesus and you can have wealth and prosperity and you'll be healed. Meanwhile, people who love Christ are dying of cancer. Thinking I'm not faithful enough, apparently, to lie from the pit of hell. This passage is used to prop up that lie. And I want to talk to you about why that's way inappropriate. So let's do the same thing. Context, context, context. Let's look at the passage context. And we're going to look at the book. And we're going to look at the Bible. First, the passage context. This one's easy. Because if you just keep reading one more sentence, it's right there. Just keep reading one more sentence. Therefore, I lost my place. I'm still in Hebrews. I'm like, where, where is it? It's not in Hebrew. It's in Matthew. Um, Matthew chapter 6. Sorry, I just, I repeat the, the verse location because I haven't gotten there yet. That's why. Secret. Matthew chapter 6, not Hebrews 6. Matthew 6, uh, verse 34. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why? For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is what? Its own trouble. If you were even slightly confused that seeking the kingdom meant that all your troubles would go away, Jesus isn't going to let you think that for more than like two seconds. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I really like this, not just because it's quippy and memorable, but there's actually some funny things going on in this statement. It's actually quite similar to uh, some things that are painted on the side of like diners, where it says, uh, free hamburgers tomorrow. Right? Because... It always says free hamburgers tomorrow. So there's never a day 
where you get free hamburgers. Um, the point is you're never in tomorrow. You, you are never in tomorrow. Tomorrow is an abstract notion of what might happen, but you are in today. Worrying about tomorrow is a ridiculous notion because when tomorrow comes, it'll be today. You've never existed in tomorrow. Weird to think about. That's what's going on. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So if you were even remotely confused about what this all things included, whatever it means, it doesn't exclude trouble. Whatever it means, it doesn't exclude trouble. Trouble is coming. We're going to look at a couple other passages that say the same thing. All right, let's look back into the context. We don't have to look far. We don't even have to reread. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, John's proclamation that the kingdom's coming involves painful separation from the things that you have really enjoyed. Right? And it involves hard labor to bear fruit. Right? Repent and bear fruit implies it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Matthew 13, it's a little bit even more explicit. Sell everything. In other words, from the moment that everything is sold until the moment that that treasure is yours, you're destitute. Right? You're destitute. And then in its most clear in, in, in Matthew 16, if you were ever confused that Jesus died so you didn't have to die in a real sense, so you didn't have to suffer, Jesus suffered. Well, that, those statements are true in the kingdom. But Jesus calls us to die. Lose your life. Take up your cross. Don't let anybody argue that all these things means a life that's peaceful, pain-free, free of suffering. Whatever all things means, it doesn't, include, it doesn't exclude hard work, loss, pain, and death. That's what Matthew has to say. It doesn't exclude hard work, loss, pain, and death. And then if you draw back to the same passage we've been referencing, God in Deuteronomy 8 looked at the people in the wilderness and He said, I let you hunger. I let you thirst so that you would know Me and how much I care about you. Right? Psalm 95 and Exodus 17 and Hebrews 3 suggest that whatever all things means, it doesn't exclude hunger or thirst as the people hunger and thirsted. It doesn't exclude long journeys and painful discipleship. Hebrews was written to Jewish people who were considering leaving the faith because of persecution. So when he says endure to the end, the end he's talking about 
is potentially martyrdom. See what I mean? So don't let anybody believe that this, all things, includes a life free of trouble, being liked by everybody. That is not biblical. Now, I want to divert from my structure just a little bit and show you a couple more passages that I think prove this concept. I'm choosing passages that are often used to, to prop up this false understanding of the gospel. Jeremiah 29. 29.11. How many coffee cups and t-shirts have you encountered with... For I know, for I know, go ahead, plans I have for you, what? We all know it, right? We all know it. Take some time this week and read what precedes that verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plan declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Amen. Amen. One verse prior, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. You're going to be enslaved for 70 years. And I know the plans I have for you. God's good purposes for His people can involve great suffering and great pain. Okay, finally, Philippians 4. This is, I feel like a bully just throwing this out there because I think everybody else has too. You know where I'm going? Philippians 4. I can do... I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who comforts me. Oh, that's not right. Strengthens me. Oh, God, I hate looking through. I use a digital Bible, okay? I'm familiar with... mostly with where things are. Mostly. Okay. All right. Philippians 4. I can do 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Two verses prior. I'm not speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What things can He do through Christ who strengthens Him? Endure seasons of suffering, hunger, need. One more, Romans 8. I don't know if there's a more beautiful testimony to God's promise to keep His people, to rescue them and keep them from beginning to end. 
it culminates in these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, there it is, but gave Him up for all, how will He not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Therefore, who shall separate us? I added it therefore, by the way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And listen to his list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. Are these hyperbolic? Is he just pulling these things out of nowhere? Or has he seen these things unfold among God's people? The sword. Nakedness. Tribulation, distress, famine. Whatever all things means, it doesn't exclude prolonged waiting and profound desperation. I love the song we sing, um, Waiting Here. What is it called, Gary? We are waiting, waiting here. And at some point, I think, Gary, did you add that last part? Um, where we just sing slowly, we are waiting, waiting, we are waiting. That's what it feels like some days. Come, Lord Jesus is there because you find yourself rallying around that cry when you're waiting for the kingdom and it seems so far off. Prolonged suffering, profound desperation. And yet, if we cling to Jesus, we will learn the secret with Paul of facing these things. Our hope in the kingdom. Okay. So what does it mean? Those are all sort of answers to what what it doesn't mean. What what does it not mean? It doesn't involve freedom from suffering. It doesn't involve, you know, happy-go-lucky, wealth, riches, fame, necessarily. What does it mean? I think there's an answer in first in Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verses verse three. Listen to his words. God's divine power has granted to us all things. What? All things that pertain to life and godliness. All things we need for life and godliness have been given to us. Right now, we have been given what we need for life and godliness. In other words, until it is the day that God has chosen for you to go and be with Christ forever, you will have what you need to survive, to stay alive. And every moment, you have what you need to be godly. I have this pattern in my life when I'm acting like a jerk. I say, I'm sorry, I was very tired. Or I'm sorry, I hadn't eaten in a while. The implication is that when I am tired and when I am hungry, I don't have what I need to be godly. And it's a lie. It's a lie. 
every moment you have what you need. That's, I think, what this passage is referring to. You pursue the kingdom and you'll have everything you need to keep pursuing the kingdom. All right. So I think that's clear enough. What does this mean for you? Well, I think it's clear. I think it's crystal clear how you apply this passage. How do you apply this passage? I think the thrust of this passage is, is is the same call you see throughout Matthew, which is seek the kingdom, namely lose your life for Christ, turn away from sin, Redirect your attention from the things of this world to the things of the kingdom and be prepared to lose everything. Anxiety is rooted in a heart that's not prepared to lose everything. Are you a worrier? Me too. Me too. Don't feel burdened by this. But the truth is, if you are fretting and anxious, if you're a worrywart, it's because you're not ready in your heart of hearts to lose everything. The kingdom is not yet attractive enough for you to be willing to lose everything. The the prescription is to go seek it. If 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 you're worried, seek the kingdom. If you're worried, learn about the kingdom in the Scriptures. Pray. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see the kingdom. Ears to hear the song of the kingdom. A heart to hope in the kingdom. And you won't be worried forever. Probably will take some time. So turn from your sin, turn away from the world, and be prepared to lose everything. In that moment, when you are losing everything, trust that God will give you everything you need for life and godliness. You're not going to stop short of the assigned number of days. God will bring you there. You may not like the path, but God will bring you there. And along the way, He'll give you everything you need to do what He's asked you to do. Then finally, when you are doing that and you find that His provision is not enough, check your heart. Rinse and repeat. I'm angry or I'm dissatisfied or I'm anxious because my pantry looks like this or my closet looks like this or my bank account looks like this. You're forgetting the kingdom. Your eyes have turned from the kingdom and that darkness that you've got your vision set on has started to corrupt your heart. You turn away from the darkness. Set aside your hope in this kingdom and and seek the better one instead. Amen? And we will do so by God's grace. Let's uh, celebrate that grace at the table.